Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. You're familiar with this passage because we preached in it for a number of weeks. And I trust and hope you have not been bored with this because this has been different each week. But it's been true to the text as we have explored various avenues of it. I want to talk to you again on this subject, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the fourth saying, the middle saying of the seven statements that Jesus made when he was on the cross. Uh, This this past week, I I read an article about Larry King, who was the uh, famous interviewer on CNN. And actually, he was on the radio before that. I remember uh, driving home one night. He had a, a late night in the wee hours of the morning program to keep awake. I was kind of going, scanning the channels and found him. That's the first time I ever heard him. And so uh, part of the interview was asking him about his methods of interviewing people. And uh, he was able to get some of the most famous people in the world and in history and get them to share things that other people had not been able to pull out of them. They said, how, how do you do that? And Larry said, well, it's very simple. He said, I keep, listen carefully. He said, I keep asking why. I keep asking why. He said, whenever you ask why, he said, it, it probes beneath the surface. And as I read that, I, th- I thought, boy, that is really true. That's really true. Now, I'm not talking about uh, sometimes a, a teenager, and it doesn't have to be a teenager, but especially teenagers sometimes, they want to get out of something, so they say, well, why? Now, sometimes they really want to know why, but sometimes to get out of it, they'll say why or to be rebellious, but not always. Sometimes they really want to know why. But why is a good question. Socrates, the, the philosopher years ago, used this method to, to teach his students. In fact, the entire method, Socrates' method of teaching, is known after that approach of asking why. Now, sometimes that can be dangerous when you're trying to determine truth, and it's a good method if you know what the truth is. And I remember after... Uh, studying a little bit, not in in great depth about that, I began to use some of that uh, in in more leadership meetings with someone that really knew the Word of God and uh, to kind of shape a a future leader rather than just surface practice. But begin to know why why did I do that in that situation? Or why do you think he did that? Or why did God say that? To get them to think. And most often, not always, but most often, they will say, I don't know or I'm not sure. I don't ask people trick questions or gotcha questions. I don't want to be treated that way and I don't treat other people that way. But what happens is when you you use that approach with people, it opens up not just a comprehensive avenue, but it gives different ideas within that. Why? In Journalism 101, in the very first classes, they teach you, if you want to get a a good story that's well covered, uh, there are the five W's, who, what, where, when, 
and why. Make sure all of those W's, all of those questions are covered in the story. Why is one of the most important personal questions. You need to know your why. Why are you here? I I have taught you from this pulpit that the secret to success is purpose. You'll never be fulfilled. You'll never be successful until you know why. What's the purpose of marriage? What's the purpose of parenting? What's the purpose of friendship? Here's one. What's the purpose of preaching? What's the purpose of church attendance? What's what's your purpose right now as you sit there? What's the purpose of, of a Sunday night and a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night? So what what are the what are the distinctions? What's the difference in life group and right now? Why? Why should you go to life group? Is there any difference? Or are they the same? They're not different. They're, they're not the same at all. Someone said this, listen carefully, when you lose your why, you lose your way. And that's true. Your why, your purpose is so very powerful. And your walk with God, your why is important. It's not just that you have a purpose, but here's what happens when you begin to walk with God. You're going to get in arenas where you don't know why. Why does God love me? We looked at this in the last couple of weeks. I don't know. Why did God allow that to happen? I don't know. And it begins to to, to come in like a barrage and and like a a snowstorm. And and you, you begin to get hit from so many areas of why you don't have the answers. And initially, it troubles you. And then after a while, like Job, in the book of Job, he went through a lot of suffering. Job, in that book, he began to ask God some questions. He was a good man. He was a godly man. And at the end of the book of Job, God began to answer Job. But listen carefully, he did not answer one of his questions. Not one. You know what God did for Job? He began to tell Job how big he was. He showed Job his creation and what he had done. And Job's why turned into, God, you you are too big for me to comprehend. In that way, your why is not a bad thing as long as you're not. Oh, I told somebody, in fact, I've told more than One, I've told you on occasion, I don't need to know the why as long as I know the one who knows the why. Then I'm okay. God knows why. And one day I'll find out why. I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 27, notice in verse 45 if you would. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over all the land. This was a supernatural darkness that God had caused. As dark as midnight, darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from 12 noon until 3 in the afternoon, Jesus had been on the cross from 9 in the morning. And then suddenly at at noon, it became dark until 3 when he died. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. This was 
The word loud there in the Greek is mega, with a mega voice. This was not soft. And he said, and this is in Aramaic, this is why it looks funny to you. This was a common language of the people. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, the interpretation, my God, my God. And here it is, why? 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 And when I read this, here's, here's what stirs my heart, is Jesus knew why. Jesus knew why. And what was he asking why about? Why hast thou forsaken me? And maybe you're suffering today and you ask God why. And you say, well, I feel bad about it. Well, Jesus asked why. And he knew why. But the suffering and the burden was so great that he still asked his father why. And it's okay to ask why. My God, my God, why, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you deserted me in this midnight hour at noon? Why why have you turned your back upon me? Now, this was planned as we looked at last week. In eternity past, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a council and they planned, they planned the gospel, they planned Calvary. But the experience was worse than the planning. You know, it's always easy to counsel somebody about something that you've never gone through. And to tell somebody what they ought to do when you haven't gone through it or you don't understand experientially. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, that is at the foot of the cross, when they heard that, that is a statement, said, This man calleth for Elias or Elijah. And straightway or immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed, a long stick, gave Jesus to drink. The rest, the other said, let be, let him alone. Let us see whether Elias or Elijah will come to save him. As I was meditating on this in recent weeks, not only in the darkness Do we discover the why, but we also, what I've been talking about is another wonder, not just the wonder of the why, but the wonder of the what. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Because listen carefully, Calvary and the darkness, when God forsook His Son, and that's why I've been spending so much time on this, this is the essence of the gospel, is when God did His greatest work on our behalf. And as a Christian, you don't move on from the gospel. Every Christian should ponder the cross because it transforms your heart. It keeps you close to Jesus. And you wonder why He did this. And then you wonder at what He accomplished. And you think about these things. And the provisions He has made for you. When He was on the cross, He provided for my past. He provided for all of my guilt and my shame. 
for who I was and what I did. He provided for all of that. He's provided for my present, for my future, for my security. I don't have to wonder because I am His and He is mine. And this morning, if you do not apply these provisions that the Lord Jesus Christ has not given to you, you're going to be insecure, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be guilty, you're going to be filled with shame and all the things that that includes. And so we begin to look at these mysteries about the cross. Number one, a mystery of separation. We spent so much time on this because we should have a mystery of separation. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou, why hast thou forsaken me? And we'll never know all that transpired there, but we do know that the father forsook his son and was separated from him for three hours as the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute, our sin bearer. What a wonder. And I've done the best that I could biblically to drive that home for you so you could see that he died for you. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died for God to propitiate, to satisfy the holy demands of the law so that he could be just and the justifier of him. Secondly, there's the mystery of imputation. The mystery of imputation. Imputation is a big, a big word, but it's a Bible word. There in the darkness, not only was Jesus separated from his father, but there's another mystery that happened in these hours. There was a divine exchange from the father and the son when Jesus took all of our sins upon himself. So that, listen carefully, so that when we believe upon him and trust him as as our savior, that we receive all of his righteousness. This is the gospel. There's an exchange. The Father in the darkness imputed all of the human race's sins, past, present, future, every human yet to be born, all of the sins that you have yet to commit. He imputed all of those sins upon the Son of God. So that when you trust Christ, when you are born again, the Father imputes the righteousness of His Son on your account and your record in heaven. Now I'm going to throw some big words at you, but I don't want to let you rattle because they're Bible words and they're using the Word of God. Imputation and justification. The doctrine of imputation is related to the doctrine of justification. You know, many people doubt their salvation because they do not understand these doctrines. There are people that I believe that have been saved, but they think they're saved because they feel good. And when the feeling leaves, 
they, they think I'm not saved. I don't feel like I'm saved. Well, the question is this. Are you still justified? Is your record still clean before God? That's the question. Justification is the act. Listen, the act of God. It's a judicial declaration. The act of God whereby God declares the believing sinner righteous has nothing to do with me. It's what God has done. He declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of his finished work. Justification is not a process. It is a fixed state. It is something that God declares. When I was nine years old, on February the 18th, 1968, about noon, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, God justified me. I didn't feel it. And later on, even when I thought, am I saved, my record was still clean in heaven because God justified me. He declared me righteous. And part of that declaration was the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon my record. Now here's the difference in justification and imputation. They're related. You can't have one without the other. The root word of imputation is impute. It's a financial term. When you pay bills, I don't even know if they do this anymore. I don't know if you do this anymore. But when you would write a check and the accountant would get your check and they would go on your record where you owe so much money and your bill was paid and they would go on your, listen, they would go on your record and listen, they would, the accountant with the authority would impute the money that you had paid on there and it had been imputed on your record. It's imputed, it's been paid. They cannot charge you again. Now let's say you didn't have the money and this has happened where our church has done this for people and Paul and I have done this for people where someone didn't have the money and we paid it for them as a gift. The, the, the account was still justified. It was still balanced because the accountant was still able to impute the correct numbers on there because the amount was paid by another person. Imputation is the ascribing of guilt or righteousness to another person. Because listen, when, listen, when Jesus was on the cross, the Father imputed to Him our sins. And He was holy. He did not deserve to receive all of our sins. But while He hung on the cross, He took all of your sins and Every person that has ever been born and yet to be born, he bore our sin. God imputed our sins to the Son of God, the Holy Son of God. And for those that will trust in Christ and believe on the name of his Son, when they trust Christ, immediately God ascribes, he imputes 
the righteousness of Jesus Christ to their record so that when God sees your name and by your record, he doesn't see your sins anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's called imputation. And that's why I say it's a mystery. And that, listen, that happened at least the first part. You can't have the first part with the second part. When Jesus bore your sins in the darkness, when he said, why have you forsaken me? He could not have done it. You couldn't receive his righteousness had he not bore your guilt and your shame. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the Bible says, For he, that's God, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus, his Son, to be sin for us. We didn't deserve this. This happened in the darkness, in the time of being forsaken. Who knew no sin, he had never sinned. He did not become a sinner in those moments, but he shouldered our sin. In order that, the word that is a pur- introduces a purpose clause. In order that we might be made the righteousness of God, not as a church member, not in the baptistry, but in him. When you come to know Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says there is an exchange and you receive the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to borrow uh, some people that could come help me for just a minute. Uh, Russell, would you help me? If you would, I would appreciate that. Charles, would you help me? You mind coming up here? Tell you what, Charles, I'm going to let you be Jesus. You know what that means, don't you? <laughs> Not too good. <laughs> Did I make a good choice? <laughs> All of us have been here, but I need—I need, I had to pick somebody. Okay, so I need you to stand down there. Now, now I'm standing down here with my brother Russell. Let's let's look out here so everybody can see, because we've all been here. Now. Um, I'm going to read this head and hold, hold it. When we steal things, we're thieves. When we lie, we're liars. When we curse, we're profane. When we're rebellious, we're disobedient. When we're angry, we're hateful, and I could go on and on. And if all of us had this on our record, I was doing some calculating that if, if we just, if we wrote down our sins and our mind and our motive and our actions, and we just committed three a day, and we multiplied that out by 365, that's uh, 900, and then you got 18, almost 2,000. That's just three a day. And then you multiply that out by your lifetime. But the truth is, is we sin more than three times a day. Hopefully not, but we do. 
And our account before God is in great arrears. I want you to take that, and I just want you to hold that up right there. This is, He is representing all of us. This is my record. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 14, The Lord did look down from heaven to see if there were any that, that followed Him, and He found none. There's none that doeth good. There's none that are righteous. This is, this is all of us. And then when Jesus came and he died on the cross, the Bible says he had no sin. And he was holy, he was pure, he was righteous, he was sinless, he was good. And he was many other things. And he hung there, I want you to hold that up there, Charles, right there, just like that. And he, and he hung there on the cross in my place, in your place, not deserving the punishment. And in the darkness, and in the darkness, may I have that, brother? Give me that. You stand right there, don't move. He became this. And much worse. I want you to think about your worst day, your worst hour. And put it on that list. That you don't want anybody to know about. It's on that list. But he did that for the universe. He did that for every single person. Of the billions, listen, of the billions of people. And you multiply that by the tens of thousands and the billions of sins for three hours. And he said, why have you forsaken me? Why is an important question, but I also said the wonder of the what? Of the what? Russell, when did you get saved? December the 6th, 1988. December the 6th, 1988. How old were you? Eighteen. Eighteen. You, you stay right there, Charles. On December the 6th, 1988. From then on, when God looks at this old boy, this is what he sees. You see it? The devil says, God, you see Russell today? You see what he did? Yeah, he's one of mine. Yeah, but he, he lost his temper driving that truck in traffic. Oh, he's pure. He's righteous. Yeah, but he did this, fill in the blank. He is. He did. No, he's mine. Because Jesus, who you hold that, buddy? Jesus Russell's list is up there. Now, some of you, I'm not rebuking you. I love you. I want you to get this. Some of you doubt your salvation because if you trusted Christ, you've been justified. And this has been imputed to you. You say, but I don't deserve it. That's the whole point. That's the whole wonder of it. 
If you deserved it, you could lose it. But we don't deserve it. It's a gift, and you can only receive the gift. This is called imputation. And then Jesus took those old sins up, and he took them, and he threw them into hell with the devil. And the depths of the deepest sea, and that's where they belong. And the accuser of the brethren brings... You know know what the thing about the accuser of the brethren, when he comes to the Father, he tells the truth. He says, hey, did you see this? And he brings up something on the list. And it's true, but the Father can't see it because he sees us through the blood of Jesus and through the imputation of his Son. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Thank you. Do you understand this? For he hath made him who knew no sin... To be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is wonderful. And you don't just think about the end product. You think about the why. And and you think about the what. And it brings glory to God. Somebody says, somebody says, well, if I believed, if I believed, if I believed that, I would... I would sin. I would sin all I wanted to. Well, you would. I smoked all the pot I wanted last night. I drank all the beer I wanted last night. In fact, you will sin, but you won't like it. Because of Jesus. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that's the Ten Commandments, there shall no flesh, no person be meant justified, there's the word justified, made right in his sight, in God's sight. For by the law, the Ten Commandments, is the knowledge of sin. That's how you know you've broken the law. But now, now look at this word righteousness. See this? Being right with God. The righteousness of God without the law, not keeping the Ten Commandments, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In the Old and New Testament is is gospel, it's grace and faith. And here it is again, even the righteousness of God. God wants you to be right with Him. But you can't be right with Him in your behavior until your record is clean, until your conscience is clean. Even the righteousness of God... And here it is, look at this, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Russell got saved in December of 1988. I got saved in February of 1968. When when did God justify you? When did God impute the righteousness of Christ? When did you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Not when did you join the church, not when did you take communion, not when did you get confirmed. When did you trust Christ? Which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all. That means anybody can be saved. But it's only upon all them that believe. That means it's only upon your record. You see, if if Christ has not imputed his righteousness upon your account, which happens the moment you believe, then yours still says guilty. It says shame. And you're going to be insecure. 
Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, and be found in Him. It's speaking about Christ. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. But that, that is righteousness, which is through the faith of Christ. So here's the word again, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. Have you trusted Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus? God cannot apply his righteousness to your account. He cannot impute his righteousness to your account until you trust him. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and honor. These are the things that he gives to us and he does for us. He gives us his righteousness. You don't deserve it. Quit trying to strive for it. Quit trying to earn it. It's a gift. It's something he ascribes to your account. It is imputed to your account. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, this is Adam, many were made sinners. You see, you don't, you don't sin because you're, a, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You can't help but sin. And when Adam sinned, it was imputed to all of us because we have his blood. And the moment I was born, I was born guilty and hell bound. It was imputed to me. My record was born guilty. Contrary to what psychology teaches today. So by the obedience of one, this is Jesus contrasting Adam and Jesus, shall many be made righteous. And that comes through imputation. This is what the verse is about. You can be made righteous through Jesus, but it's not by following his example. It's not by joining the church. It's not in the baptistry. Church membership is good. Baptism is proper. But, but they reflect other realities. It doesn't remove your sin. It doesn't change your record. Only the gospel, only faith in Christ can do that. Only trusting Jesus. Now let me give you my favorite text on imputation. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, this is Jesus, that justifieth the ungodly. You say, preacher, but you don't know what I've done. The only kind of candidate that he justifies is ungodly people. That's it. John W. Peterson wrote a song years ago calling, He's Filling Up Heaven with Sinners. Now, he makes them saints. But before, you can, before a saint can become a saint, the only candidates are sinners. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, not his obedience, his faith. Now look at the word counted. The word counted is a word imputed, applied. His faith is counted for righteousness. The moment you believe, the moment you receive the gift of salvation, God counts that on your record. Righteous. Holy, godly, perfect. You say, well, I don't feel it. It's not a feeling. It's by faith. 
To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is imputed, is counted unto him for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. There's a blessedness in it. There's a joy in it. You can't get it any other way, that imputation of holiness, of a clear record, saying, and this is all in Psalm 32, he's talking about David, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, now watch this, look at this, to whom the Lord will not, will not impute sin. You see that? Will not impute sin. Well, you're one of those people that believe once saved, always saved. Well, I I don't believe it because somebody taught me that. I believe it because it's what the Bible teaches. The Lord will not impute sin. Now, people will. Institutions, you can get fired from jobs. But if you're a genuine child of God, the Lord will not impute sin. The devil will come and he'll say, God, did you see what, what Frank did? You need to impute sin unto him. He says, I will not. My son paid for that and his record is clear. And by the way, the reason he will not is he cannot because the penalty has already been paid. And because it's paid, it's clear. The Lord will not impute sin. Romans chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For they, speaking of Israel in the Old Testament, being ignorant of God's righteousness. And you see the theme of righteousness, being right, having a a right record before God. They're ignorant of God's righteousness, but they, they went about to establish their own righteousness. They were sincere people. They were religious people. Maybe you're like that. You, you, you've done so many things to try to please God. And, and you're sincere. You want to be right. But Israel, they did not submit themselves under the righteousness of God. If you want the righteousness of God on your account, you must submit yourself unto God. Amen. And the way you submit yourself unto God is you believe Him. Say, God, I believe your word. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The mystery, the mystery of separation, the mystery of imputation. Wow. Wow, I don't understand it. The why of why he did it, but the what of what he did. Wow, it just, wow. Even when I'm... They used to sing a song, I think it was the cathedrals, I'm not sure. He loves me, even when I'm bad, He loves me. God loves me. Because of who He is. And my record is clear. And very quickly, there's a mystery of rejection. A mystery of rejection. 
You see, not only is the Father and the Son involved here at the cross, and I believe the Holy Spirit was involved there as well, but there were people at the foot of the cross, and they were rejecting the Son of God. You see, this was uh, Jesus, the fourth saying of Jesus. The first statement he made was, was, Father, forgive them. He was offering forgiveness. They heard him say that. The second statement he made was to the thief. When the thief said, remember me when you come in, the day, in your kingdom, he said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. They heard the invitation, the response. Pilate had a, 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 the first gospel tract placed over his head. He said that, uh, you know, this is the king of the Jews. They knew he professed to be the king. They saw his behavior. They knew that he was different. Yet in verse 47, some of them that stood there when they heard that, they said, this man calleth for Elijah. One of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed and gave Jesus a drink. And the rest said, let be, leave him alone. This is a mocking statement. Let us see whether Elijah will come to, to save him. Now, when was this happening? It was black as midnight. And I've taught you that, that darkness was a, a symbol of God's judgment. And here they are making these mocking statements. And it was, I believe this is right towards the end of the, of the three hours. And as I was preparing this, they're looking at the propitiation of God the Son of God, the one who died for them, this is frightening. I believe it got real quiet when that darkness came. But after a while, they had gotten dark. They got a cut. Listen, they got accustomed to God's judgment. They just got used to it. Well, it never gets dark like midnight dark at this time of day, they got accustomed to it. And their heart began to betray them once again. And the wonder of separation of Christ's substitutionary death, the wonder of his imputation, but the wonder of their rejection. How can you reject the Son of God in this moment of divine Judgment. I believe he, he put his hand over the sun, as it were. And they heard the gospel. They saw the gospel. He was God's gift. And they began to mock him. You see, you may be here and you say, well, I would never do that. Well, remember there were two thieves and only one got saved. And maybe God is drawing you today. You, you, you feel him drawing you to come to him come to Jesus this morning have you ever been to the cross have you ever received the gift of salvation have you ever have your record cleared of guilt and shame and fear and he can save you today he can change your record 
but even better. That's great. But he can change your heart and make you want to serve God. And give you joy and peace. Make you rejoice in this standing, in this standing that never changes. This standing that the Bible calls grace. It's such a good thing to do. I don't have to prove myself. I can just rest in it and enjoy it. The grace of God. Do you know Him? Is your record clear today? Don't you want it to be? Don't you want to know Him? I bid you come. He bids you to come. I want you to bow your heads with me if you would. Thank you for your attention today. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around.